0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots
1: today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 80th episode of the podcast. 80 is not a number to get too excited about. However, it's a nice round number, and I am thankful that I've been able to do this for 80 weeks and bring weekly podcasts talking about fly fishing and fly fishing miscellany. I mean, this is the quarry and culture of fly fishing. I was talking with another author. Well, that's a little bit of an overstatement to say another author. I was talking to an author, and uh, we were just discussing how there's a lot of good fishing writing, talking about how to fish and and, and uh, what fish like to eat and things like that, but that's what we like to go back to over and over again with whether it be an article or whether it be a book is things about the entire experience because you might not catch that fish, but you were in the river, you were driving to the river, you were tying the fly on, you were having a conversation with a friend over the fire, and those are the things that we can always relate to the fish might not always be there the number of fish the size of fish Those experiences are always there, and so hopefully you can appreciate that, and if you've been listening for 80 or 50 or even five episodes in, then uh, hopefully you can appreciate talking about the quarry and culture of fly fishing. So this is the 80th episode of the podcast, and as I've done every rounded to the 10 episode, I interact with some emails, with some comments on the website, with some chirps on social media, so I'm going to get into that right now. The very first thing that I wanted to read was from John, and John responded to an article that I wrote called Closing Down on Opening Day, and the gist of the article was that I kind of steer clear from trout fishing on opening day, especially in popular areas. Now, I used to live in Pennsylvania, and I used to live in South Central Pennsylvania, and so any place where a fish may have been put any time in the last month was just a madhouse on opening day. So that's my frame of reference. I know there's other places like that. You know that uh, YouTube video where there's all those people in this village and they're surrounding this pond, and as soon as the bell goes off, everyone charges in and just stuffing fish into their pants and things like that. Some of the places I lived were like that, only with uh, Zebcos and uh, bass boats. But anyway, this is what John has to say. He says, Opening day is all about the tradition. Best part are the heart-stopping, artery-clogging breakfasts. Sadly, this is not happening in my state this year, and for good reason. One thing is for sure. If you walk 20 feet from the bridge that they use as a base for dumping the trout, you will find quality fishing without the crowd. In this day and age where kids would rather look at their phones or computers all day, opening day is, sadly, one of the few days you will see kids fishing with their parents. When I was a kid, before computers, cable TV, video games, etc., opening day was equal to Christmas in anticipation and participation. We could not wait to get out for that 6 o'clock opening bell. Tackle and fly shops need the opener to feed the cash register. We'd not have much ice this past winter and the shops are in tough shape. May I have an old fart in the minority, but I would vote that states continue to opening day, even if only for those of us who like to remember when. John, that was an excellent comment and a great post and a good kind of counterpoint to the point I was making. You know, I never had that experience growing up. We didn't fish a lot and we certainly didn't fish opening day. And when I started fishing, I fished on catch and release trout waters that were open year round in Virginia and in Maryland and in Pennsylvania. And so I never really thought about opening day. It was never a thing, but for me it it was an inconvenience. I was used to fishing all throughout the winter time and into the early spring. And then all of a sudden, these places that I like to fish and I had a little bit of solitude because it was had been pretty chilly all springtime, now we're just crammed with people. But... I think I'm in the minority. My experience is not normal. Um, And I need to remember that I need to remember that what I see is not what everybody else sees. So as john shared, there is that tradition for those who lived on streams that maybe either had a a stocking program, or even just had a state that uh, didn't have year-round fly fishing or fishing then opening day was a special thing I can imagine I know how excited my kids get about thinking about a fishing trip that's maybe only two days away uh, and they they just can't wait for it so as a child anticipating that day when you could actually finally get out and fish uh, is probably a lot of fun and so yeah I, I can't knock the whole practice just because I had a couple of bad experiences and I think that's important for us to all remember and that you know that's consistent across the board I mean if somebody they they had a bad experience with bait fishing or with fly fishing that d- shouldn't be a condemning Uh, Moment for that entirety of that activity. Uh, I mean, this is a perfect example. If I was dogmatic about uh, opening day, uh, that would be any better than somebody who thought that all fly fishers were elitist or all bait fishers were knuckle draggers or something like that. I mean, none of those things are true. Those are stereotypes. Those are generalizations. And just because there are some places where opening day is an absolute madhouse, doesn't mean that opening day is bad across the board. I um, can feel the nostalgia of John's post and. And going back to what I said earlier about reading, about not just the fishing, you think about some of the classic fishing literature, and opening day is certainly a part of it. So, you know, my experience is my experience. I shared my experience, but uh, that ought not be my entire view on the subject, and shouldn't be yours either. This is an email from Trey. Trey says, I've just been recently listening to your podcast and thought you would enjoy hearing about an experience I had that was inspired by your recent podcast, Why you should fish at home. I live in southern Alberta, Canada, and I frequently fish for trout in the Rockies, both here and south by the border in Montana. But this time of year, there are only a couple of trout streams open for fishing in my area, and neither are super close to me. About an hour and a half, one way is the closest. After I listened to your podcast, I had the idea of trying to fish a small pond very close to my house that I know holds small pike. I've never targeted pike before, so after a quick internet search, I tied up a couple of deceivers and headed out to the pond with my five-weight. I had an awesome time targeting and catching a couple of small pike on the fly. It was a great experience, even though the pike were small. I learned a couple of things from them. and It was great to get out and try something new so close to my home. Thanks for the inspiration and keep up the good work. Well, Trey, thank you for that story. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I'm glad that I spurred you on to do something. That's really what I intend for the podcast and the website is for you to take uh, one little piece of, of what you get from what I say or what I write, and then you go and build something from it and so that's awesome that you're able to get out and you know pike are nothing to sniff at even small ones i mean here i get into pickerel and pickerel is absolutely the same shape as a pike but it certainly isn't the same in uh, power and in difficulty to get into but they put a bend in a fly rod they will a, a pickerel of a certain size will fight the same or harder than a trout of that same size And uh, just because they are kind of stinky and slimy and all those things doesn't mean that they're not a lot of fun. And so I'm glad you got into those fish. I'm also glad that you were able to kind of turn it into a little adventure. I think that's a lot of fun. I think that's what a lot of local fishing is. It's adventure. Whether you have found a pond that you've seen this, you know, giant goldfish somebody released a few years ago swimming around in it and that becomes your moby dick that becomes your quest or it's a really small creek and you just want to get something out of it just to confirm there's fish in it Um, all of those things are a lot of fun it's what you make of it that's uh an article i think i wrote last week about finding your water and uh, that was kind of showcasing me using my five foot nine inch one weight that i talked about but that's how I've been using that rod, just exploring, trying, to, just trying to find fish, not trying to find a fish, not trying to find a fish of a certain size or a certain species, but finding places where there's water and just seeing what's inside of it. And uh, one way it's great for that because a lot of the water around me in very developed part of New England is small. The things that haven't been uh, paved over or channelized and turned into um, retention water, you know, a lot of the wild water is very, very small. And so... It's a quest, and it's an adventure, and it yields very, very small fish, but it's a whole lot better than doing a lot of the other things I could be doing. I'm outside, and I'm fishing. But all of those things, I would say, are not as exciting as Trey's story of catching pike in Alberta. So, never been to Alberta, never caught a pike on a fly rod that I, that I am aware of. Um, but uh, thanks, Trey, for sharing your story, and uh, keep at it. Here's another email from Quinn. Quinn says... First off, thank you so much for all you do with your website and your podcast. I read your posts and listen to your podcast on a regular basis and get a lot of information from both of them. I wanted to quickly ask you a question about forest fires. A couple of years ago, there was a pretty big fire up at a place where I fish regularly, and fishing hasn't been the same since. In fact, I've been up there a few times and haven't even seen a fish in the river. Do you know if that river will ever recover, and if so, about how long does it take, and what all goes in the process for it to recover? Thanks again for all you do, and hope that your family is doing well through this covid trial. The world is currently in well thank you quinn we are doing well and uh except for one thing that i think i'll talk about next week but everyone's cool everyone's fine but uh, i do want to bring up something that's happened because of the um the coronavirus and the quarantine but so quinn has a great question about forest fires so i want to preface this with the obvious point that i am not a biologist of any kind I have spent a lot of time in and around conservation and around kind of forestry, fishery stuff, and I read it because it feeds into my passion for fly fishing, but this is only kind of an amateur minus uh, opinion. But the bottom line is, when it comes to forest fires, is that there's no one story and there's no one situation because every fire is different and every ecosystem is different. So, for example, if you have a heavily spring influenced creek that creek is going to have a lot of thermal protection if that water is going to be cold and there's lots of spring water flowing through it, a fire on those banks is going to heat that water up, but it's not going to have as much of an influence as it would on a freestone stream further down in the valley. And so those fish, and more importantly just the fish, the uh and things that are even smaller that live in the water and the aquatic vegetation is going to have some protection. Uh, furthermore, that a stream like that is going to have a lot of protection because it doesn't require streamside vegetation, a riparian buffer, to stay cooled off. So you have a freestone stream. It depends a lot on the shade that it gets, especially in its lower reaches of those streamside trees and shrubs to keep the water cool in the summer months and support not just the fish, but the things that the fish feed on. And if a fire moves quickly, then it can blow right through uh, over a stream. And actually, in those situations, you have all that ash going into the stream. And all the chemicals and minerals and whatnot that comes out of ash can actually stimulate a big bloom of plants and algae and things like that. But you have a slow moving fire and you have a river that doesn't have a lot of protection because the water is warmer and you are going to have damage. It is going to heat up the water significantly. It's going to kill what's in it if the fish or other uh, animals don't have an opportunity to migrate upstream or downstream. And there are situations where it really does scour out because of heat the river. Now, nature is built to be very resilient. Organisms are built to be very resistant. I mean, our body is built to be resistant to injury. It has a mechanism for healing itself. Other uh, organisms are the same way. And ecosystems are also built to adapt and to repair, adapt and to repair. And so you might have uh, the, the case that a river is really damaged and completely cleaned out for a stretch maybe it is 200 yards maybe it is half of a mile but you have those populations of fish that are still upstream and downstream and over time they will repopulate that stretch of water but the fish are going to be following other things they're going to be following the really teeny tiny stuff and then the bugs and the plants obviously as they move back in That's what's been happening to nature as long as there's been nature. There's always been forest fires. When we see them, it is traumatic, but we often think of the short game you know, what's happening this month, next month. And it is sad. It's no fun. It's not good that animals are dying and that the places we like to recreate and use aren't the usable anymore. But nature will take care of itself. It has been designed to do that and it will rebound. It might not take a year or five years, but I know I've fished in places down in the Blue Ridge and up here in New England that have been burned over, that have been logged over. And some of those events have been within the last decade and some of those have been within the in the last century and there's fish there now maybe they weren't this the same fishery that it was prior to those events but maybe they're better and it's very difficult to quantify that unless you do have that big picture but quinn that's a a great question and there's certainly literature on it but hopefully uh this can be a little bit of a, a spark to to go and, and research that and also a little bit of hope but i would say how long it's too many variables without seeing the stream I don't know and I'm sure a biologist wouldn't know either, but uh, the best thing that you can do is I would say walk upstream and downstream in that stretch and you're going to see the biggest change in those transitionary areas where it's closest to where the damage uh, is beginning to to stop. And when you see that, then that is uh, a little bit of hope for what's going to happen in that section that was really, really severely damaged. My last comment is actually a two for one. Justin Carfagnini, who runs Carf Outdoors, along with a number of other great social media outlets, has chimed in on a few of my articles. And so, first of all, go check out Carf Outdoors. He talks about things I don't talk about, but even if he talked about the same things I talked about, you should still go check him out, because he does good stuff. Takes good pictures. If you ever think, I really like what Matthew writes about, but his pictures are awful, you never have to have that problem with Justin's stuff, because Justin is an excellent photographer, and so, uh, yeah, go check him out. But the first thing he writes is, uh, wild trout love mop flies. Now, that might have just changed your perception of Justin, but just wait. Wild trout love mop flies. Heck, I'd eat some mop flies if I were swimming in the water and they didn't have hooks. Looking forward to hearing how those flies you tied will work in the stream you were at compared to other flies that were not found there. So this is in response to my article called "Learning Under Rocks," where I did some stream monitoring using the Ascent Fly Fishing River Oracle Streamside Kit, and I tied up some little yellow caddis flies. And I have to report, I have not been back to that stream. I've been to other streams that I already know a little bit more productive. But um, it's got me convinced as I was reorganizing my fly box recently that I'm not going to fish with stuff that I don't know that's in the water. I've, I've learned my lesson too many times, especially at this stream, that gets a little bit of pressure. And uh, the great thing about that stream monitoring situation is that I know that those caddis are going to be hatching eventually. They're not going to stay little larva in their cases forever and so um, Justin you're still just going to have to wait and I will let you know when I get into those fish but it's inevitably at this point in time going to take another session of monitoring the stream to see what's in it before I go fishing but the great thing about that kit is that it can go on your waiting belt or you can just throw it in your pack and uh, you can scene the river bottom and uh, make an immediate judgment of what's in there. You can always turn over rock, but I really find from all of the stream monitoring I've been doing um, that you really get into a lot more stuff if you do do a little bit of a dance and shake those rocks up quite a bit into a net. His second comment was in regard to fast flies, three uses for colored UV resin. This is where I talked about using Loon's UV colored resin on my flies for a number of purposes. He says, haven't messed around with any of the UV colors from Loon, but I'm looking forward to it. Such a great idea having some color added instead of trying to color and cover with a Sharpie. Yes. I I don't have a whole lot of, of, of success with using Sharpies on flies. I know that some people do, but especially when you're working small, and I've been tying a lot of um, smaller nymphs and even small streamers, and using those Loon UV colors, I can apply color to any material. I think that's one of the downsides of Sharpies is there's some materials that have a little bit of a sheen or some gloss or maybe even too much texture and they aren't going to come out right. And the other great thing about Loon UV colors is that they are opaque and so even if you are putting a blue dot on a black body it still looks like a blue dot. It doesn't just blend in with it. It doesn't soak it in, especially if you hit it with that UV light really quick. So yeah, Justin and everybody else, I would encourage you to check out the Loon UV colors. It just adds a whole other dimension, a very simple dimension to your fly tying. And I need simple, like I said last week, and this is my short stave of the barrel of casting across is fly tying. So any leg up I can get, I will take. As more that I could get to, and I've gotten back to everybody individually, but keep comments and emails and social media chirps coming. I love it. And uh, if you haven't heard back from me, I said this before. If you haven't heard back from me, it's uh, not you. It's not me. It's the internet because I get back to everybody. Uh, so uh, please uh, let me know if you had a question that has gone unanswered. This week I'm casting across. Monday was called Spring Creek on repeat. And I can remember with a remarkable amount of clarity my first trip to the LaTorte Spring Run back when I was a teenager. And I can even remember the music that I was listening to. And so I kind of combine those memories of the music and the moments and bring them together to give a very quick uh, synopsis of this first trip and then kind of riff off of that on... The things that we remember and maybe how our experiences get tied to things that have nothing to do with the water, have nothing to do with trout, but simply have to do with being in the moment. Again, that culture of fly fishing. I'll spoil it, I got skunked that first time, but I remember getting skunked that time more than I remember dozens of the fish that I've caught in the La Torte, um, in the years since. Some big fish I certainly remember, and some small fish I certainly remember. But uh, that skunk stands out in my mind for a couple of special reasons that I write about. And then the next article is called Function in Form, Inversion Sling Review. This is actually a video. I'm trying to make a few videos now and again because everybody takes information in in uh, different ways, and it's very hard to talk about a product at length on the podcast, and even writing about it, if, if, if what I appreciate about it is very tangible, then I want to show it. So the Vitavu Inversion Sling, I'm not going to repeat the video here, it's only I think like three minutes long, but it's incredibly comfortable, and it's a high-riding Sling Pack. It's a high-riding Sling Pack. This is big for me because I'm only 5'7 on a good day, in wading boots maybe. And so if I'm fishing in the salt, which I use the Inversion Sling a lot in the salt because it is incredibly water-resistant, capital W, capital R, water-resistant, and I wear it in the surf, and because I'm shorter when I wade out, I need a little bit more clearance so that I can get where I want to go. So the inversion sling is a great option if you're fishing the surf, but I also use it in freshwater, and it is my go-to pack when I am fishing conventional gear with my boys just because of the shape of the main compartment. It's perfect for some Plano boxes and uh, for food. So you always need food, and you always need Rapala floating minnows. Rapala or Rapala? Let me know what you think about that one. That's a good question. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Whiskey Leatherworks. So Whiskey Leatherworks is a Montana company and they do handmade leather goods, all sorts of different stuff. They have belts and they have bags and they have wallets, but what really turned me onto them and to paying attention to what they are making is that they have trout and upland bird print items they have little journals that have straps with trout-themed prints, they have leather belts with trout and bird prints on them, and then they have flasks that have uh, Sightline Provisions badges on them. And uh, Sightline Provisions is another company that does some awesome stuff. Edgar does great work in conservation and for the industry. But They partnered with Whiskey Leatherworks, and so there's some really, really good stuff. If you need a gift for somebody who fly fishes, uh, a graduation gift maybe this time of year, or maybe Father's Day, definitely check out Whiskey Leatherworks. Some really, really cool stuff, and it's not just for fly fishers. There's some things that are just standard quality everyday wear gear. I will put a link to Whiskey Leatherworks in the show notes of this podcast. On castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.